0: Hello and welcome to this, the ninth edition of the BLS Report. The BLS Report is a series of podcasts on issues of interest to members of the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia and the wider legal community. The series honours the legacy of our friend and mentor, the late Professor Bob Bax, AO, one of the founders and key drivers of the BLS. I am Professor Pamela Hanrahan of the UNSW Business School. I have with me today John Keeves, a partner with Johnson, Winter and Slattery, and a former Chair of the Executive of the BLS. Hello, John. Hi, Pamela. Today's podcast is about the Australian Law Reform Commission's reference into Australia's corporations and financial services law, a topic very dear to all of our hearts.
1: Today we are extremely fortunate to have Justice Sarah Derrington, President of the ALRC and Justice of the Federal Court of Australia. Justice Derrington was appointed as President of the ALRC in 2018. Prior to her appointment, Justice Derrington was Dean of Law at the University of Queensland and a barrister specialising in maritime and shipping law, general commercial law and arbitration. Appointed in 2013, Justice Derrington was the first female Dean of the School. Welcome Justice Derrington and thank you so much for joining
2: us. Good afternoon, John and Pamela. It's lovely to be with you.
1: Now, I should add that Pamela was an advisor to the Hayne Royal Commission and is a leading author on financial services law. Pamela, could you set the scene for us and take us back to the Royal Commission and where the ALRC reference on financial services laws came from?
0: Those of us who have worked closely with the Corporations Act in general and the financial services and financial product laws in particular will be aware that this is a very complex Statute and I use complexity in its technical sense there, not just as a criticism. One of the issues that emerged during the Royal Commission was that there were so many special cases and different treatments of arrangements and instruments under the legislation that there was a sense amongst not only regulated entities but their advisors and clients that the legislation had reached a tipping point in terms of its navigability and its sense. So one of the recommendations, indeed the final recommendation that the Commissioner made was that uh, the problems of design, not just policy and content, that the legislation ought to be reviewed. And I think Justice Derrington, that's where your reference comes in.
2: Yes, uh, Pamela, that's right. The reference is about simplifying the legislation and it's a technical reference so that we are looking most acutely at the design rather than the underlying substance of the law. If we can
0: leave aside for a moment the financial services and financial product laws that make up most of the second part of Chapter 7, thinking about the rest of the Corporations Act, what are the main problems do you think that you've identified with the remainder of the statute?
2: Well, I think you've already identified the, the major one. It's too big and it tries to do too much. And part of that problem, I think, is attributable to 20 years of accretion in the regulatory regime. It seems that the legislature has been very happy to add to the Corporations Act, but not so happy to delete anything from it. The other problem with it is that it's comprehensive but lacks any coherence, both internally and externally. Uh, For example, how the Corporation Act interacts with the general law and the existence of particular legal regimes that don't speak to each other as effectively as they should. And some examples of that are the director's duties in chapter 2D, uh, chapter 5 on external administration, And of course, chapter seven with the best interests duty and the overlap with statutory unconscionability. There are also problems throughout the Act with definitions. And we've seen some recent examples of that in relation to the definitions of officer, securities and associates. And we have complexity and duplication throughout the Corporations Act as a whole. Lack of coherence in the disclosure regimes is between those that apply to fundraising and prospectuses on the one hand and those that apply to financial products on the other and new provisions like those governing continuous disclosure that have just been lobbed in with everything else. And then, of course, we've got the navigational difficulties throughout the Act caused in part by confusing numbering and the need to cross-reference and... The need to be across the various statutes, regulations, instruments, and the ASIC guidance. And the final problem that is uh, acute throughout the whole Act is overprescription. Well, just a short list of problems to fix. Um, I wonder,
0: with we kept aside the financial services and financial product laws um, as a separate problem, do you think they share those? difficulties
2: or is there something else going on with those two regimes? They share many of the same problems but I think the financial services and products provisions are an extreme example of what else has been going on in the Act. It's also a feature of the anomalous nature of Chapter 7 because in large part it's to do with consumer protection but it sits within this law dealing with corporations and securities law. So it's got more in common with Part 2, Division 2 of the ASIC Act than it does with the Corporations Act. And the other feature of Chapter 7 that makes it particularly unusual is the extreme nature of the regulations and ASIC legislative instruments that have arisen because of the notional amendments power we found in our data set 1,200 notional amendments and the vast majority of those are in relation to Chapter 7.
1: Can I just add this? I sometimes wonder that uh, maybe the problems with Chapter 7 are a natural but unintended consequence of the deliberate legislative design settings flowing from Wallace and Clerp 6. For example, treating a wide range of similar but different products and licensees under a single regime in each case would the attendant need to have slightly different rules um, and having deliberately over-inclusive concepts such as financial product um, and derivative on the basis that the regulations and the regulator would be tasked with creating exceptions. And and so that that need for those 1200 amendments was actually a kind of a deliberate design choice back in 1997 to 2000. And also having high level principles um, stated in the legislation with the intent that a lot of the detail is placed in the regulations. That was the idea at the time. And uh, the Foreign Acquisitions and Takeovers Act is another horrible example of that legislative design choice. Anyway, Justice Derrington, could you comment on those points?
2: Yes, I think you're, you're right. What What has been caused by the legislative architecture as it was set up after the Wallace Inquiry was highly prescriptive, and dense provisions that needed to be extensively amended and the inconsistencies between what was to be placed in the law in the Act, what was to be in the regulations, and what should be in ASIC legislative instruments. And it was really unclear where the responsibilities between Parliament, the Ministers, Treasury and ASIC should sit. And so I think we were left with this jumble because uh, the architecture was not thought through really as thoroughly as it should have been.
1: I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, and I, I think it's one of those examples where it really did seem like a good idea at the time, but uh, it's taken 20 years of, of practice. Anyway, Pamela, any, any comment on that?
0: Well, John, I'm famously known for saying that Chapter 7 is the worst piece of legislation <laughs> ever ever made. So I guess people know my views on it. Um, I think part of the problem is with the licensing regime for financial services providers. I'll leave, leave aside, I think financial products has a different problem to do with the way it connects to Chapter 60. But in the licensing regime itself, I think we've lost sight of the fact that the licensing regime was set up as a kind of I hesitate to use this word, quasi-prudential system. So only those people who meet certain minimum requirements in relation to their resourcing and competence ought to be allowed to provide financial services for money in our marketplace. And we've kind of lost sight of that. And I think a lot of people now imagine that those licensing obligations are sort of direct duties are imposed on financial services providers in relation to their individual interactions with their clients. And and I worry that, you know, even at that very macro level about the policy that underlies Chapter 7, that's become very blurred over the last two decades.
1: So, Justice Derrington, has this question of the, what we could call the Wallace architecture, been raised with the ALRC? And if so, how might that fundamental design issue be addressed within existing policy settings, which is within the the, the reference?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because the Wallace architecture has been raised with us um, by many people and on numerous occasions. And I think the particular feature that people pick out is the over-inclusiveness of concepts. Uh, That seems to be what Wallace is renowned for, uh, along with the adoption of functional definitions. But I think when you go back to the Wallace report and look at it carefully, it actually hinted at a more flexible legislative hierarchy uh, that would have managed the consequences of these over-inclusive definitions in large measure. It recommended uh, that ASIC have the power to prescribe the content of disclosure documents. Now, if this had happened, it would have allowed ASIC to tailor the disclosure requirements um, without notional amendments to the Act. And so the prescriptive disclosure regime that we ended up with in the Act uh, could have been avoided. So I think it it might be that if we went back and said, well, we'd like to look at Wallace Pure uh, in, in the form in which it was originally intended, we might have ended up with a better product. But one of the problems, I think, in the reforms of the 90s was that the corporation's law simplification program was cut short and, and was left somewhat unfinished because everyone's attention turned to CLERP. And as a result, we lost much of the opportunity to develop an overarching framework or an architectural plan for the legislation and how its constituent parts fit together. CLERP 6 really probably should have been its own piece of legislation. And the final observation to be made in relation to this question is that we have been unable to locate any existing policy about legislative architecture. So we think that gives us a bit of a freer hand when we are going into interim report B, because it's unlikely that anything we recommend uh, will be beyond the existing policy settings. There are none. That's always welcome.
0: Justice Derrington... um This all occurred at the same time as the constitutional arrangements underpinning the corporation's legislation were um, in play. So if you think about the timing of Clerk 6, it cut across what led to the 2001 referral of powers from the state to the Commonwealth. I sometimes wonder if people are boxing at shadows a bit on the constitutional issue. Are you concerned that perhaps splitting the legislation up or reorganising the statute book more generally
2: would create constitutional problems or is that not really an issue? We've, we've looked carefully at the constitutional issue and we, we've really done some quite detailed uh, research on it. We think it probably is a red herring. We think there's probably enough of a basis uh, to to do... Uh, things like splitting the Act up and perhaps amalgamating some other statutes into this regime. Of course, you can never be sure who will want to try their hand at a constitutional challenge, Um, but I think if people are satisfied that what we come up with is a better system, then at worst uh, we might have to ask the states uh, to agree to it. One of the issues that
0: the commission has been very vocal on is navigability. So being able to locate the law, particularly where the law has been amended by delegated legislation or legislative instruments. Um, And I know that a number of the submissions on interim report A have urged a technology solution, if I can put it that way. So couldn't we have, you know, an official version of the legislation that contains hyperlinks to all of the um, amending instruments and so on. I guess my question is this. If we do that, and I'm sure it would be very welcome by solicitors who have to advise on the legislation, but aren't we just papering over the problem? Isn't that just pandering to legislative incoherence rather than addressing it? Do you worry about
2: that kind of thing? I do worry about that kind of thing, um, partly because we will be asked uh, to put back to the government a series of options from the least painful to the most painful, and the least painful would be this technology solution. Uh, But even that, to some extent, is painful for the government because, as you know, our Federal Register of Legislation is not yet written in x TML, so it's very difficult um, for some of these legislative solutions uh, to be managed. So we are thinking about it at a deeper level than just the technological solution. And it's interesting that some time ago now, a matter of years ago, the delegated legislation Senate Select Committee recommended that the Australian government adopt the New Zealand approach which provides detailed guidance on legislative design and processes. So we're very interested in the New Zealand model and how in Interim Report B we can explain some of these design principles and make suggestions as as to how they would be implemented in this country. You may also be aware that there has been a review undertaken into the Legislation Act, um, a statute which is largely unknown, but really quite important. And we met with the panel who was reviewing that and recommended they consider processes both pre- and post-legislation to ensure maintenance, consistency, currency and navigability of the acts. One thing we particularly urged on them, which I don't think um, was favourably received, was that there should be a periodic review timetabled into every piece of legislation, be that five, seven or 10 years. Uh, That's what happens in the UK and in New Zealand. And crucially, in relation to this topic of legislative design, it's been acknowledged in many of the submissions uh, that there should be a reintroduction of a CAMAC type body who would be responsible for advising on the policy and substantive law developments while letting the drafters get on with the legislative design?
1: Well, I think the business law section would be um, a firm supporter of the idea of, of, of CAMEC v 2.0. Um, and So um, the, the ALIC has been thinking a lot about delegated legislation and legislative instruments. What are the arguments that the ALRC is hearing for and against allowing the Principal Act to be substantially altered by regulations and ASIC instruments? And how will this be addressed in the next stage of work leading up to Interim Report B?
2: The first thing to observe, I think, is that the alterations to the Principal Act with which we and stakeholders are rightly concerned are not matters of minor tinkering. We're concerned with the alterations that reenact the law in a different form. So, so that it's important to note that that's the level of modification that we are talking about. And that happens now without any parliamentary scrutiny. So this is the mischief we say that needs to be fixed by paying proper attention to where in the hierarchy certain obligations or prescriptions and the consequences of breaching those obligations or prescriptions belong. The detail, which may not be applicable in all circumstances, we think should be somewhere else. And this is what we are currently consulting on. This is the focus of Interim Report B. And we're hearing uh, from those with whom we consult and also those who took the opportunity to tell us in advance in their submissions thus far, that it is essential to retain the flexibility that is inherent in the current regime, that is uppermost in people's minds. So we're very conscious of that. But the caveat is that they want transparency. And if the act is going to try to be all things to all people, then we need to make sure that we have the requisite powers sitting in the right spot and for them to be located in the right place within the legislation. The current use of the hierarchy is so inconsistent that it's difficult to identify any policy on what the policy might be. So we are working through legislative structures very carefully.
0: This is the BLS Report. I'm Pamela Hanrahan and we're listening to Justice Sarah Derrington, President of the Australian Law Reform Commission. Commissioner Hayne, in his report, talked about how difficult it is to achieve law reform in business law because there's so much entrenched and vested interest and so many naysayers who come up with every unintended consequence or technical objection. And I think we've seen that already in some of the interim reports that people have published as well as submitting to you some of the submissions on on those. Um, I won't name the organisation, but one financial services industry body has said, well, it's a great idea in principle to clean up this legislation, but please don't change anything without checking back with us. And I think it, it is a genuine problem. If we were to do a wholesale, throw it out, clean it up, start again, it's very difficult to see how that could be achieved and I think that was the experience with the tax simplification, which got a little bit stranded as well. So my question is this, how does a law reform body like the Law Reform Commission think about that problem of dealing with the path dependence and um, sort of sunk costs in existing legislation,
2: however poorly it functions? It's a, it's a problem that... Uh, is inimical in every law reform project that I've been involved with. So business law is no different from family law in in that sense. There are entrenched positions uh, on either side of a reform process. The question ultimately is whether the government to whom we make these recommendations is willing to accept that the pain that will inevitably be felt through transition costs will be for the best in the long run for future long term gains. And at this stage, I freely admit that we have not yet made the case for whether uh, we should embark upon a process that is going to cause pain to stakeholders. But it's fair to say at this stage, I think, that there is almost unanimous agreement in all the submissions we've received, in all the consultations we've had, that the Act is complex, difficult to navigate, unwieldy, and its complexity of itself causes increased costs to all involved in practising in this area of the law and to all the clients, everyone involved in financial services. But as you say, there's equally almost unanimous agreement that the sector does not want change, that will see their existing processes made redundant and increase costs and uncertainty. So in making the case for each of the proposals or recommendations that we do make in the end, alongside we have to be prepared to set out a detailed, staging plan for how this work will or could be implemented with the least possible disruption to the industry. And although some people in the submissions have said, well, it was odd that you started with the definitions, nobody's disagreed with any of the recommendations we made about the low-hanging fruit. So it makes perfect sense that Treasury can now start at least stripping those out And if we show people that it'll be 10 years before a a new beast is fully unveiled we hope we can minimize the pain but it is something we are incredibly conscious of
1: and can i just make the observation that the kind of the minimum viable product would be at least kind of making the legislation less of a mess in the sense that makes my head hurt reading it and having to to come to terms with the regulations and the instruments even if all the policy, there was zero policy change, but it was just kind of uh, in a form that was coherent. And that's sort of getting back to the navigability point as well. But even that would be a vast improvement and a, a cost saving without any policy change. Of course, I, I'd like to aim a lot higher than that personally, because I think there's the the, the, the policy is actually a bit incoherent as well as the, the actual structure. Anyhow. Convenient segue. Leaving aside the current terms of reference and lingering concerns, real or imagined, over the constitutional considerations that we talked about a little earlier, if the ALRC had a blank sheet of paper, how would it fix this legislation?
2: Well, we do realise that throwing it out and starting again is probably not feasible for anybody. But we would start at the basics of articulating a legislative framework. We do think that that's something that is missing really across the whole statute book, but particularly in in this sphere. So we would start by working out specifically what should go into an act, what should go into regulations, what should go into legislative instruments, and then a bit of a think too about guidance and whether guidance has become too legislation-like to be really called guidance and so is causing more trouble Um, than perhaps it thinks it's solving. The second thing we would want to do is to be able to really interrogate the government about its policy settings and to be crystal clear about what the legislature is in fact trying to achieve. That's not clear uh, in all circumstances and the quality of the explanatory memoranda seems to have declined over over the years and so it's very difficult to work out in many cases what the government wanted done. More importantly, uh, something that seems to have been missed along the way, at least from our perspective, is a real understanding of what level of risk is acceptable in the context of financial services and in different settings. So if we're talking about retail clients, what's the level of risk that should be borne and by whom? And we have no understanding of the government's risk appetite in relation to the various sectors that are regulated pursuant to this legislation. Thirdly, I'm fairly sure we would not try to cram everything into one statute. Um, I would envisage a suite of legislation uh, that achieves structural integrity and coherence. I think it's interesting
0: that you mentioned before about the review of the Legislation Act. It makes me very happy to associate with people who are as interested in these arcane processes as I am, but I think one of the things we've really seen in recent years from the Office of Best Practice Regulation is that they will do reports on legislation, and this includes legislation that was passed post Hain, where they will write to the minister and say, you haven't made the case for this reform um, based on your own explanatory memorandum and regulatory impact statement if they do one, which they don't always do. And then the legislation just passes anyway. And so I wonder whether, you know, a very significant piece of this work is not so much about what's in this legislation at the moment, but as you say, you know, do we need more discipline in Australia, which has always been a legislation-heavy regime but never inclined towards codification, Do we need more discipline about the lawmaking process, you know, something more like regulatory stewardship, as that's understood in New Zealand and in the UK? Do you have any comment on
2: that issue? That is one of the, the major factors that I think makes our legislation so difficult and and not just this legislation. And regulatory stewardship or legislative stewardship is not something that's been built into our DNA. Of course, OPC has its guidance, but again, it it doesn't seem to be as closely followed as it might be. And in any event, without a review process, you you don't have the opportunity to look and see where the accretion has happened uh, without... the the necessary cleaning up of what no longer needs to be
1: there. We mentioned the hardwiring review of legislation. I think that's something that the business law section would support philosophically. But personally, I just think it's a a wonderful idea to see regulation as a kind of a dynamic process and there'll be one iteration and then you need to review it and see how it worked and make adjustments and and not, um, not view it as something that's going to be exactly perfectly right the first time because it almost never is.
0: I I know that our financial services colleagues and those of us who dabble, including myself and John, in Chapter 7 are very engaged with this issue. But I wonder, can I ask for BLS members more generally, what does the current reference have to offer and how can they help um, the sort of commercial law people, if I can put it that way?
2: Well I'd like to reiterate a comment I made at the BLS meeting in Canberra, I think it was last year although the years have blurred into one. Uh, The ALRC sees the BLS as the custodians of the law on financial services and by that I mean the practice and the legal consequences of the way the legislation operates. So to that end we see your members as best placed to stay above the factional interests who have their deep-seated personal views about whether things should change or not, uh, depending on their client base. You, on the other hand, the BLS are the centre of excellence and we look to you for the unbiased advice about the way our proposals will play out for your clients and in practice and whether you think the proposals will make any significant difference to the cost of legal advice and the cost of litigation. And that's that's really important. To help in at least this next stage of the inquiry, if not the final stage, um, what we'd really welcome from you are examples of your regular pain points you know, what is it that comes up most often in your practices that, you know, sends a shiver down your spine when you know you've got to delve into that particular part of the legislation. If you could give us those sorts of examples that we can test against our proposals and come back to you and say, well, would this make life any better? Uh, That really would be an excellent contribution. And in a shameless plug, you can... Find how to contact us on the ALR website, or you can contact us directly at financial.services at alrc.gov.au.
0: Excellent. Well, I'm not sure I can top that wonderful advertisement other than by saying, Justice Sarah Derrington, thank you so much for your generosity and your engagement with the profession on this very significant project. We know it has a couple of years still to run. Um, but we are sure we're in very safe hands. I'm not sure uh, most of the BLS members like to be thought of as custodians of <laughs> Chapter 7, but uh, we'll try and step up to the plate, I think. So thank you so much, and thank
2: you to John Keyes.
1: Thank you, Pamela, and uh, thank you, Justice Derrington. It's been a great a great session.
2: My pleasure. Thank you to you both. I'm Pamela
0: Hanrahan, and this has been the BLS Report in honour of the late Professor Bob Baxt AO, produced by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia in collaboration with two SER.